Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, it's a privilege to be your people. As this text goes to show, there's something profound, transformative, and needed when we see ourselves as sons and daughters of God. And so we ask that the weight of this text meets us and produces the result in us that you so willed, that your Holy Spirit has inspired this word to produce, and that your Son has enabled us to see through the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. I once heard a seminary professor ask another seminary professor what his sugar stick text was. Now, he was Southern, and Southern people say weird things, and these are one of the weird things I didn't know what he meant, and apparently neither did the other professor, and so he had to explain himself. He said, a sugar stick text is the text you carry around in your pocket that you can't wait to take out and enjoy. It's the text where if you, got, you showed up to church and uh, the pastor didn't show and you had to emergently step up into the pulpit that you would pull out and you'd be ready to preach it, uh, that it would be a treasure to you. And today, what was just read for us in Luke 15 is my sugar stick text. I've used this text at every funeral I've ever led. When I drop dead, I want one of you to get up and read this text at my funeral. Lord willing, it's not today, but someday. Um, I end up sharing it every year with the Grizzly football team as their chaplain. I've used it with college students. I've used it in guest pulpits when I've preached elsewhere. I've used uh, it in weddings before. I've used bits and pieces of it here at church. Uh, But this is the first time where I've gotten to address this specific parable in context as we've been preaching through the book of Luke. I think later today, my family has some delicious prime rib for Father's Day, but this... This is my Father's Day gift. This is the treat that I have, and uh, you get to watch me enjoy it. Um, You're probably familiar with the text today. It's often called the prodigal son. Probably your non-Christian coworkers or neighbors, even Michael Scott in the office, knows the story of the prodigal son. And you might think that because I love this text so much, because I've used this text so much, that maybe perhaps you will finally hear Tyler's best sermon. But I'm here to tell you, you probably will not And here's why. That's because each time I preach it, I see something new in it. I discovered this week in looking at this text that it's often called the Evangelium in Evangelio. Right? You all know that? No. It means the gospel inside of a gospel. And that's in fact what we have. This is good news upon good news in the story of good news given by Jesus who is himself good news. One commentator said of this text, he said, nearly everyone who wrestled seriously with this text ends up with a sense of awe at its inexhaustible content. And this text is so profound because whoever you are, from wherever you've come and whatever you've done, you will find yourself in this parable. But the Bible is not primarily about you. If we are made in the image of God to understand ourselves, we do not look at self, we look at who made us. We look at the one in whose image we are made. And in this parable, we get a beautiful glimpse into the God who has created us and set forth to redeem us in love. We see, in a sense, the anatomy of the triune work of salvation in our lives while also giving you a framework to understand guilt and grace 
forgiveness, hypocrisy, and repentance. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to see it in four movements. First, we're going to see lousy sons and a loving father. Then we'll follow the younger son and see the straying son and the father. Then beginning in verse 25, we begin what is sometimes considered another parable itself, where we learn about the staying son and the father. And then lastly, I spent a lot of time thinking about this point. It's Jesus. That's it. And so to begin, we need to remember the context of what uh, these three, it's actually a a three-part parable that Jesus is giving, and Jonathan opened it up last week. We see the context of Jesus' words here in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, where Luke tells us, now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the Pharisees were disgusted at the company that Jesus kept. And knowing this, Jesus launched into a triplet of parables, all dealing with lostness. Last week, we saw the lost sheep and the lost coin. And today, we see the lost son, where Jesus ties all of it together in this stunning teaching. But this parable isn't merely about the prodigal son. It's actually about prodigal sons, in the plural. And this is the first point we see today. This is where we see lousy sons and a loving father. Lousy sons and a loving father. Jesus opens this passage in verse 11, giving context. He says, there was a man who had two sons. And then notice how Jesus introduces the family here in verse 12. He says, the younger of them, that is the younger of the two, said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, already we've noticed there were two sons, one of them, and then the property was divided between them. This isn't a story about him. This is a story about them. And to understand the scandal of both sons here, we need to understand a little bit more about inheritances in the Middle East. Uh, Kenneth Bailey was a Middle Eastern uh, scholar who spent 15 years traveling uh, the Middle Eastern countries and many Oriental countries. And this parable was so uh, enigmatic to him, given the context, that he often asked these individuals when he was traveling in villages from anywhere from India into uh, Afghanistan, he asked them about this parable. And he said the conversations would go like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? They would answer, this request means he wants his father to die. Indeed, that's exactly what the younger son is doing. Traditionally, the inheritance of the father and all of his material possessions and estate was to be divided up and given to however many sons he had upon his deathbed. That was when it happened. Now, the law made instances where they could kind of write up the contract beforehand, but none of the property was actually transitioned over or divided out until dad died. So when the younger son comes to his father and asks to cash out, he is quite literally saying, I don't care about you. You're better off to me dead. I don't want you. I want what you could give to me. Happy Father's Day. This might seem like a really harsh statement. 
And it is. But biblically speaking, and why Jesus uses it, is it's one that each and every one of us has actually used in reference to our creator God. Right? This son had no choice who his father was. You have no choice who your creator is. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, for although we knew God, we did not honor God or give thanks to him. For although this son knew his father, he did not honor him or give thanks to him. He continues in verse 22, describing what we're seeing in this text. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of God for what Paul goes on to describe as the glory of physical, temporary, and fragile things. This is what the younger son has done. Did not honor, though he knew, and he made an exchange. He exchanged a relationship with the father on the father's estate for the relationless riches of the father to be spent in the world. And he did so with great boldness. We learn right away, and this is why we have to be reminded there's often two prodigal sons here, because one makes himself very explicit. And I don't know if you've done this, you're here today, perhaps you probably haven't, but there are people who you knew who grew up maybe in a Christian home, and there came a point in their life where they said as blatantly as this man, I'm tired of living in this place. Give me what I need to enjoy this world on my own. And let me go. Let me find a better land. Let me find a better place. Let me find greater joy. And you, again, might say that you've not had those kind of thoughts about God. But I'm sure as you meet people in here, you will find individuals who have. And ask them about that story and what brought them back. But the point of Jesus' parable here is that this robbing of God, this exchange, this um, knowing but not honoring, doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always look like this first prodigal. In fact, right out of the gate, the older brother is implicated in the process as well. We'll see more as Jesus continues, but in a Middle Eastern context, the older brother would have had two moral obligations in light of the younger brother's request here. First, he would have been responsible to vindicate his father's honor, to come and and reprove his brother and say, this is our father. He has cared for us. We owe him respect. You do not make these kind of requests to him. But then secondly, because that relationship is so obviously broken by the nature of the request, it would have fallen to the older brother to act as the mediator to bring about peace between the younger brother and the father. But what did we notice here? Don't miss what Jesus said in verse 12. Did you notice? He says, the property was divided between them. The older brother was more bold. He was more brash. He was more audacious. He was the one vocalizing the request, but the older brother was fine to benefit from it. He didn't step up and say, no, 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 no. I will not accept this. My father is worth more than all of this. He's just like, well, if he's going to look like an idiot, but I'm going to get some of it, that's a pretty good deal for me. If you've ever been a sibling, you know that deal. You'll take it. No one in this text loved the father. In fact, we're seeing playing out again what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. We're just like Adam and Eve in the garden. It was Eve who ate, but it was Adam's silence that facilitated all of this to happen. And despite this, despite these two lousy, selfish sons, through some sort of mysterious generosity, the father permits it. He divides his property and he gives it to each of the sons. And now Jesus follows this younger brother. And here we see our second point today, the straying son and the father. 
the straying son and the father. If you look at your Bible in verse 13, it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And so we learn four things about the younger son's journey there in verse 13. We learn he went quickly, he went with conviction, he went cross-culturally, and it went catastrophically. He went quickly. It says, not many days later, in an agrarian culture, it's not that the father had just this, this uh, vault of coins and cash that he could just give, and now he's got this liquid money that he could spend. It was tied up in livestock and tied up in land. And so the process of taking those land deeds and actually selling them for what it was worth would take at minimum months. But this son did it quickly. He did not care that the father's property was valued for what it is. He just wanted the immediacy and was willing to sell it for pennies on the dollar. He wanted out of this as quickly as he could. And it was a fire sale of all that was the father's. But he also went with conviction. It tells us he took everything with him. He wasn't like a kid who went off to college, who left some things in the closet left some of the stuff he wanted to return to later when he came and visited, he made it clear that he was not coming back. He went quickly and with conviction to never have to return. He left nothing behind. And we also see that this journey took him cross-culturally to a far away country. This man didn't travel to another Jewish town with a desire to meet another nice Jewish woman and have nice Jewish kids while they waited and reaped the promise of God's Jewish people. He forsook all of that and went to a far away country. This is significant because he walked not only away from his father, he walked away from his father's religion. This was not only a change in scenery, this was a change in worldview. But what's interesting and what still happens today is that he, even though he wanted a complete worldview, he couldn't help but take pieces of the father's world with him and expect those same pieces and features to show up in that faraway country. We do this all of the time. Our world is doing this all of the time. We want to avoid the rule of the Christian God, but we still want the realities of a Christian God It's not that we don't want love and grace and compassion and generosity and justice fixtures that when uh, philosophers of religion look, they say these are are distinct to the Judeo-Christian ethic. There are not other worldviews that have these tenets as their core. So people want those things. They just don't want the God that comes with those things. But what we don't realize is at our core, grace, generosity, forgiveness, justice, mercy, compassion, they are not naturally occurring elements in our world. They exist because they are tied to the character of our creator God, or in this story, of the faithful father. And when we run from God, trying to find the things that exist only inside of God, it typically only goes one way catastrophically. And that's exactly what happened in this story. He spends all that he had, and in one moment, famine came. Jesus says in verse 14 that in that moment, in contrast to all he knew in the Father's house, he began to be in need. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. 
this man ran away from the father in order to satisfy what he thought was a need. But instead, the opposite happened, didn't it? He ran to the world to have a need satisfied, but the world didn't satisfy his need. It exposed it. It did nothing to give him what he was hoping to find. In fact, where he sought freedom, he found slavery. He hired himself out to a Gentile who stuck him in a field with the pigs. So what's going on here? Well, in direct contrast to what he hoped to to find, he found emotional and physical distress. Emotionally, he realized that he is still not a free man. He is still a little boy. He is still dependent upon others. He is not captain of his own soul. He's as dependent as he has always been. Moreover, the person he's dependent upon is someone who has no care for him. In the eyes of the foreign citizen, this prodigal son is just a foreign runaway who can find no better purpose than sitting out in the fields with his pigs. And he was, Jesus makes it very clear, all alone. There was no money, there's no relationships, there was no joy. It was emotional isolation and emptiness. But second, there was physical pain. Jesus says he was in agony. In a twist of irony, he sat among pigs, who even for a backsliding Jew would have found this completely repulsive, to be tending pigs. And while those pigs ate those pods, being happy as a hog, quite literally, He had nothing, and Jesus makes it clear again there. Why did he have nothing? Because no one gave him anything. A few weeks ago, on Mother's Day, you know, that's how it works. On Mother's Day, we talk about hell. On Father's Day, we talk about love. No, (laughs) Um, that's how it happened. That's not how it was supposed to happen, but here we are. Um, Jesus talked about hell, and he described the same emotional and physical pains. Hell is realizing that you got none of what you wanted that your own heart has chosen a hell of its own choosing. You are isolated from God. You are isolated from relationships. You are isolated from everything you held dear and you know it because you can see it. It's right there as we'll look at next week or in a couple weeks. It's just across the gulf and it's not for you. But then there's physical pain. Jesus describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. This famine is a metaphor of a reality. A reality that is for each and every one of us when our hearts are far from God, when we have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of mortal things. And it will happen to each and every one of us eternally and endlessly unless something happens. And what happens to the son? I love how Jesus puts it in verse 17. Did you notice that? How does Jesus put it? He says, but when he came to himself, the wonderful joy of coming to your senses. He came to himself and he came to himself. Now pay attention. He came to himself in relationship to what he knew about the father. Don't miss that. When we come to ourselves, when we hear that, we want to deep dive into our own self. But what does he do? Everything that's fueling his coming to his senses is not what he knows primarily about himself, but what he knows about his father. Look at that. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, now he understands himself, I perish here with hunger. 
And what we're seeing here in story form is really the anatomy of the early stages of conversion, of coming to faith in Jesus. Conversion is, by the grace of God, coming to your own senses and realizing everything in life in light of the Father. He becomes your true north. He becomes your perspective on everything. And that's what this man does. He is a hired servant, hired to another country. And he begins to think what it would be like if he was hired by his father in his own estate. Christianity, more than anything else, is the hope of returning. God created us. Sin and our hearts ruined it and exiled us in a faraway country. And our only hope is that somehow, in some way, we can return. And it clicked in this guy's head that what made the father's house so great was not the gifts or the riches, but the relationship of the father himself. He realizes that to even have daily provision as a slave in the father's house was better than the best life outside of it. As the psalmist says in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts, one day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So what does he do? He resolves to go back. And after two parables defining the joy of repentance in heaven, here we see again what repentance looks like. Repentance is two things. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. And we see this both in the little speech he rehearses in verse 18. Notice it says, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, so there's the change of direction. He's going another way. And here we see the change of heart, the change of mind. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. A change of heart and a change of direction. You see, the gospel is not for those who never wander. The gospel is for those who always return. All of us have wandered. All of us have gone astray. This is us. And our only hope is in returning when we consider the goodness of God. And thinking about the goodness of his father, he realizes his sin, he resolves to go back, and he walks the same path he just walked, but this time with empty hands. And now we see what the father does. And this is astounding. I can't understand this. Can you understand this? If you can, please write a book on it so I can understand it more fully. Because we can read it, but to comprehend it and understand it is to actually have our affections rewired. Look at what's happening here. Read with me verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This is the origin of Father's Day barbecues. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, contextually or culturally, the way in which the son left, and remember how quickly he sold all of the father's goods, would have been not merely a slight against the father, but against the slight of the whole community. 
the shared land, the shared value was sold and squandered away. And then he went and he spent all of that wonderful national riches on the slot machines and pigsties and prostitutes of the Gentiles. It was a disgrace to the community what this son did. And when the son came back into town, the son who just took a good Jewish fortune and spoiled it, he was going to have to face the weight of what he did as he walked that long road to the father's estate. But what did the father do? Did you see that? He saw him a long way off. He felt compassion for him. He ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Friends, when we come back from the fields, we do not come back shamelessly. We do not come back sinlessly. But we do not walk that path alone. The Father walks with us. We have a Father who indicates to all who might scoff, to all those who look on and say, that person who did that thing? (laughs) And the Father says, but he is mine. And we are coming. We often think of this story in merely the capital R, repentance, the first time faith. But dear Christian, you must learn the father who walks with you in repentance. There'll be times where deep-seated sin issues in your life might stay hidden and secret because you fear the walk home. You might fear what your spouse thinks, what your boss thinks, what your kid thinks. But the father walks with you. Repent and trust him. Repent and let him vindicate you. Let his hand guide you. The Puritan Stephen Charnock says this. He says, he is the true father who has a quicker pace in meeting than the prodigal has in returning. Who would not have his embraces and his caresses interrupted by his confession. The confession follows, does not precede the father's compassion. How does he rejoice in having an opportunity to express his grace when he has prevailed with a rebel to throw down his arms and lie at his feet? And this, because he delights in mercy. That's good. We should read more Puritans. Remember the speech the son rehearsed? Notice two things changed when he met the father. First, the primary movement was not the son's mouth to confess, but the father's mouth to kiss. It was met by the father's affection before he was ever able to utter anything. And we can't miss this because the affection of the father doesn't eliminate our confession. The confession was still happening, but here we see a God who is zealous to embrace. But the affection we get from the father in conversion changes our confession. It reorients our understanding and our affections. Look back at what his first speech was. Listen, so we're just going to do some Bible study here. We're just going to compare and contrast. Listen to what's same. Listen to what's different. Verses 18 and 19. This is when he's in the field. What is he thinking? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So we've made it clear there. He's returning. He's unworthy. He's going to work. But what did he say? After this powerful encounter, with the grace of his father. Look at verse 21. 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Did you see it? Or more importantly, did you not see it? Did you see what changed? The son no longer asked to be made a hired servant. This is so important because you see, just like us, our hope in grace is still often rooted in legalism. It's rooted in what we think we can provide. We know the nature of the Father is to forgive. We've read the Bible. We've listened to country music. God is gracious and loving, and he's going to accept us back because that's what good dogs do. And that's God's this glorified dog in the sky. He's going to welcome us back. But in order to really feel like we've earned it, we've got to pay it back. In the field, the son was like, I defrauded him. I'm going to work as a hired servant, and I'm going to pay him back. I'm going to give him every penny I've ever earned because my sin was so bad. But when the father kissed the son, when he was met with the embrace of affection, the request vanished. It didn't vanish because the son suddenly realized his crime was not a big deal. It didn't vanish because the debt of his rebellion was any less. But instead, when he realized the full weight and wonder of the Father's character and the miracle of grace, he realized he could never repay it. The debt was too big. The Father, so beautiful and lovely that to leave him in the first place was to commit a sin you cannot earn your way back from. Our debt is too high. Our sin is too deep because our Father is too good. And so to come to Jesus in a spirit of repentance to receive his grace is to drop your work at the door. It's to come with dirty hearts but empty hands. It's to come and say, I have nothing left to offer. Until you get to that point, the affection and grace of the Father has not changed you. Because you don't know the massive weight of your sins. And more than that, you do not know the massive transforming power of God's grace. Our encounter with grace is so strong that it changes the very nature through which we approach. And the beautiful thing is in light of this. What does the father do? He moves to affirm sonship immediately and publicly. He doesn't give him the towel of a servant and send him back to the fields. He gives him a robe. He gives him the family ring with the family crest. He brings him into the house for a feast fitting only of a son. And here's the beauty of it. We all have the problem of reading history and reading stories and seeing tragic things and thinking that that could never be us. We think that if we had this man's ability, if we had that riches, if we had this man's world, we could find peace and joy and acceptance and belonging all on our own. This man did it wrong. But notice this, you are not so special that this does not apply to you. This man left the father's home seeking freedom from sonship. But in the end, he is saved through sonship. He is brought back by being welcomed into the family of the father he once spurned. And the father throws a party. Not a pity party. Not a shame party. Not a festivus. A celebration. And he invites, as we saw last week, everyone. But it's here we see the next saga of this parable. 
the staying son and the father. The staying son and the father. Meanwhile, we read that the older brother, the one who stayed with the father, he hears a commotion and he asks the servant boy what's going on. In verse 27, he answers. He says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And so what's the response of the brother? Well, we probably know, which removes some of the rhetorical effect, but this should be shocking to us. Jesus says the brother was angry, so angry that he refuses to go into the feast. That's a special kind of anger, right? My kids get angry all the time, but very rarely is there a dessert that their anger keeps them from. They'll begrudgingly come and eat the cupcake. But here, this this son is so petulant in his anger that he pouts outside. But the father comes out. Man, this is a story of sons coming home, but it's a story of a father who goes out. He goes out and talks, and here we see why the son is so angry, verse 29 through 30, where he says this. He says, look, old man, these many years I have served you. Now that word serve is rooted in the Greek word doulos. It means slave. I have slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command, Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Do you see it now? Do you see the second prodigal son? In verse 15, the younger son was enslaved out in the fields of the foreigner. But in verse 25, where do we meet this son? We meet the older brother who was enslaved in the field of his father. Both sons were lost in the fields. The difference is where they were. One son son stayed, but his heart was never there. The younger brother left to do what? To spend the father's resources with those far away. He threw parties. The older brother probably put together or is at least calling names that he included prostitutes in that. But what was here in the heart of the older brother? Why did he stay? Why did he obey? Why did he slave away? He tells us so that someday he could spend the father's resources with his own friends. Both brothers only wanted the riches of the father. They wanted nothing to do with him. They were in it merely to get out what they wanted. And here Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, or for us today, he's rebuking any of us who always see the prodigal as someone else. He's showing us that sometimes our seemingly Christian and religious obedience and our nearness to Jesus is just a cover-up. Often our proximity and our piety is not to enjoy God or to be with the Father, but merely to enjoy it for our own self-righteous ends so that we have our own leg to stand on, that we can lord ourselves over others. And if that's how we approach following Jesus, then we will respond this way whenever a gross sinner comes back. Because we will be upset and, and livid that we stayed and we slaved, we did work, we memorized scripture, we served the poor, we sat under Tyler's hour and a half long preaching. We did all this stuff and he gets to come in and just get it for free. Tim Keller, who just passed away last month, says this. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. 
They were both using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. This is the story of both sons. One strayed, one stayed. Both had hearts that missed the point. Both sought to leverage their own efforts to gain from the father what could never be found apart from him. And just as the father went to meet the straying son, he goes out to the staying son. And that's the very point he makes in verse 31 and 32. He says, son, you are always with me. What's mine is yours. It was fitting to be glad and celebrate. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As straying prodigals or as staying Pharisees, we must lay down all our hopes of rewards in this world, all of our efforts, all the comfort of self-righteousness and realize that all the Father has is ours and he is all we have. That he is the source of all of our joy and to have him means we have no lack. Now in theological circles, this story actually gets a lot of heat. And it gets heat because it seems to be a beautiful picture of salvation, but there's no cross. There's, no, there's forgiveness and there's acceptance, but there's no atonement. But this is where our last point makes everything so clear. And that's why it's so brilliantly named by the master preacher, Jesus. That's it, that's the last point. Because we're sitting here and we're saying, Jesus, where is he? I don't see him in the story. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees who take the mantle of being the older brothers. They are the leaders. They are the ones who steward the promise of God to the Jews. They are the ones who seemingly have never sinned. Jesus even says of them in a, uh, a mocking way, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. But they are the older brothers who are disparaging those, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, who are coming from far away, the tax collectors and sinners. But what this parable goes to show by silence is what the older brother ought to have done, what the older brother should have done. And again, I'm indebted to Ed Clowney and Tim Keller for pointing this out in it, but you see it in this text so clearly. Ed Clowney puts it this way. He says, Jesus steps off stage and replaces himself with a Pharisee. The full force of this parable comes when we reverse that substitution. What should the elder brother have done? Jesus, the true elder brother, not only sits with prodigals at heaven's feast, but he comes seeking them down the roads of far countries to find them in their pigsties. The gospel itself is the story of a seeking savior who knows the father's love. If mission is lost, the gospel is lost. You see, remember, the younger brother cashed out on everything that was rightfully his. He spent all of it, which means what? 
It means that everything the father used to affirm his acceptance to that younger son, the robe, the ring, the shoes, the barbecue, all of it belonged rightfully to who? To the older brother. Wouldn't you be mad if someone came back squandering their share with of the property with prostitutes and whiskey and fun things and you're here slaving away and now their price of acceptance is what you worked hard to keep. In the story of your salvation, the only way the father can welcome, kiss and robe you with the affirmation you need to be a child of God is because in beautiful triune perfection, he knows that your older brother has not only come down to save you on the cross, but he is willing to share with you the inheritance that was always and only his. He gives us the robes of his righteousness and he didn't open up his closet It put him on the cross. The way we come back is by the Father's grace through the cross of our older brother, paying the penalty of our sins to bring us back. As Paul says in Romans 8, we are heirs with God and with Christ. He gives us his righteousness. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant. The older brother, the true older brother, is the only way this story works. He's the only way you come back to the house of the father and know there's anything left for you. And that's who Jesus is. That's who he delights to be, the older brother who rejoices when we take what was never ours to begin with, when we take what was only his and we return home. And so there's two ways we apply this text today. The first is repent, come back. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, come back. There is no other road. That makes it hard, but there's no other father and that makes it easy. This is where we go. When we humble ourselves by faith, we come with empty hands, we leave aside our requests for work, and we take what the Son has given us on the cross, and we walk into the Father's house robed in the riches of humble righteousness. But second, we not only repent, we now put ourselves to the mission of retrieving and receiving. The Pharisees scoffed because Jesus received sinners, but here we see the older brother who not only receives, but who retrieves. And notice how the older brother spoke to his father. He said this, he said, when this son of yours came home, did you realize that? He couldn't even call him his brother. He's like, dad, when your problem came back, when your son came back, but look at how the father corrects his vision in verse 32. He says, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother, was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. The author of Hebrews says in chapter two that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brother. When we begin to see ourselves as the prodigal, even the prodigal who stayed in our own self-righteousness, then we can begin to see and treat everyone else like Jesus, our older brother, treats us. 
We move towards our own brothers, not by saying that's God's son, deal with it, but by realizing that God has given us as a family of faith because of what Christ has done as a model to go and retrieve and receive the lost, to bring them back, to say, this is my brother. This is my sister. Now make no mistake, as we grow in being an evangelistic church, I know of three times this past week, where members of this church explicitly went and shared the gospel with somebody at work or through a relationship with the intent of calling them to conversion in Jesus Christ. May that happen more and more and more. As we do that, there will be times where you feel like the older brother. When others come, it might mean seasons of lack for you. Sharing the gospel might give you less comfort. Talking about Jesus with your coworker might give you less ease. When sinners come into church and they show up on time because you never do, they might sit in your seat. When sinners come into your community group, you might realize that they're not like me. And it presses on your comfort and your ease. When prodigal sons come home, they bring with them messes and wounds. And you might have to move into those instead of sitting back and watching Netflix at night or going to Grizzly football games. Those might demand your time and you say, no, I've earned this. There might be times where the elders of this church have been investing in you or people in your community group have been investing in you. But when a new brother or sister comes home, we might reallocate that care for a moment to the one who has come back. And unless we see endless, infinite grace in Jesus Christ, we will always be the older brother who whines. But Jesus Christ has won us by his merits so we could be the older siblings who rejoice. So that when they come, we count it as no loss in order to gain a brother or a sister. Because Christ has sought and shared with you, we seek to share with others. Why? Because we cannot lose what Christ has gained. Paul talks about this in Romans 9. We're neither death nor life, nor angels nor present, nor past nor future, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are wed to the Father through the Son. We lose nothing. Infinite, endless, eternal joy by grace through him. We have been dead and now we are alive. We have been lost, but our brother came down and we have been found. It is fitting that we should rejoice. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done, not only to save us, but to sanctify us, to bring us back from our pigsty by the merit of your cross but also to show it what it looks like to be seekers of the lost. Lord, we pray that we call others to repent because what others cannot miss in our own life is the joy of the repentant, the wonderful affirmation of God on the work of the Son. And they see that and they say, though the road is long and hard, who wouldn't walk that road? Who would not walk with such a father? Who would not join arm in arm with such a brother? So Lord Jesus, as we confess faith in you, as we sing in conclusion, it is fitting to celebrate and to be glad 
For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen.